2: Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, the impact of the true crime podcast serial on the case it delved into and on the podcast landscape. Plus, my conversation with Abigail Disney about her documentary that calls out her own family's company for failing to pay workers a living wage.
0: There has ceased to be an understanding that every single person Who works at that company no matter in what position is deserving of a livelihood
2: but first here's my retake for this week the academy of motion picture arts and sciences has expressed regret over how sashane littlefeather was treated at 1973's oscars when she refused marlon brando's best actor trophy so maybe now's a good time to look at other Hollywood transgressions that also might deserve an apology, especially content that targeted broad swaths of people who have been marginalized and derided. Some of the worst transgressions are relatively recent. This isn't about Birth of the Nation or Gone with the Wind. Here are four movies that helped foment intolerance at best and hatred at worst. First, 1980s Cruising. A New York City detective in search of a killer, is about to disappear. Writer-director William Friedkin's crime drama leeringly depicted gay subculture as violent and aberrant, and despite its incongruous on-screen disclaimer that Cruising was not, quote, an indictment of the homosexual world, unquote, the film was very much received as such, and after its release, the screenwriter of Philadelphia said that he and his boyfriend were assaulted by men who had recently seen cruising. But they'll never take all freedom! Next, 1995's Braveheart. Mel Gibson has a well-deserved reputation as, one, an anti-Semite for both 2004's The Passion of the Christ and his 2006 drunk-driving rant about Jews, and two, as a racist misogynist, but he has other targets. Tell me, what advice would you offer on the... uh present, uh, situation! His best picture-winning Braveheart features a gratuitous scene of homophobia. A prince's gay lover is summarily tossed out of a window to his death that sadly drew laughing approval from some moviegoers.
0: You don't understand. These guys are pros. From the age of 12, they've been dodging people like you.
2: Now, 1998, The, the Siege. They're attacking our way of life. The president wants it stopped, and there's only one
1: way to do that.
2: Directed by prominent Hollywood liberal Edward Zwick, the film's depiction of Middle Eastern terrorists was so extreme that prominent Arab and Islamic groups protested its release. A Guantanamo Bay enemy combatant actually said the film's martial law roundup of Arabs mirrored his own arrest, imprisonment and torture for 13 years. He was never charged. Am I in that movie or on a stage in Hollywood? He said. Sometimes I laugh at myself and say, when does that movie end? Finally, 2016's Zoolander so
0: 2. Hey, I want to introduce you all to my Muse and basically like the biggest supermodel in the whole world right now, dude. This is all.
2: All what? Yeah, you might think that some of those responsible—director, co-writer, and star Ben Stiller, co-stars Benedict Cumberbatch and Owen Wilson—would know better. But the sequel's depiction of the non-binary model All, played by Cumberbatch, features a mashup of hateful gender stereotypes all in just seconds.
0: By the way, All just married her himself. Bro. Mono marriage is finally legal in Italy.
2: Maybe a few more people in Hollywood, besides the movie Academy, could embrace the maxim that it's never too late to say you're sorry. After all, Sasheen Littlefeather waited nearly half a century to get her apology. Coming up after the break, Abigail Disney takes on The Walt Disney Company in a new documentary. You might not expect an activist documentary called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales would have any connection to someone with a last name Disney. But Abigail Disney is hardly beholden to the media conglomerate. The granddaughter of Roy Disney, who co-founded Disney with his brother Walt, has been an outspoken critic of skyrocketing CEO pay and wage inequality, especially as it relates to Disney and its former head, Bob Iger. Her campaign began a couple of years back when she very publicly called out the company and Iger. She took to Twitter, penned an op-ed, and then spoke before Congress.
0: There is nothing inherently wrong with a $65 million payday. As long as your own employees, people my parents and grandparents taught me to love and revere, are not so strapped for money that they have to ration their insulin.
2: Her new documentary, which she directed with Kathleen Hughes, profiles longtime theme park workers who are struggling to get by on their Disney paychecks. I spoke with Abigail Disney and Kathleen Hughes after their documentary premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year.
0: Kathy and I worked together on a film a few years ago called The Armor of Light. We were kind of poking around for the next project and had a lot of different irons in the fire. Um, And then I went on CNBC and said what I said and I came back the next day with a Twitter thread that went viral, and it turned into Washington Post, and then I'm testifying for Congress. So all of it happened really quickly, and every media outlet, with the exception of ABC, was reaching out to me. And I thought, like, I'm a communicator. I make films. This is what I do. So why would I not use the medium that I communicate in? And so Kathy and I kind of looked at each other and said, well, let's just start taking a crew with us.
1: Just seemed, yes, it just seemed like a great way to talk about one of the most important issues facing the nation. And it's not like we haven't been talking about some of this stuff. Yeah, There have been so many stories written about what's going on, but this felt like a way to get people to really stop for a minute and and think about it. Because to bring it to Disneyland (laughs) is a whole new whole new approach.
2: The happiest place on earth, we should say. Yes. Um, Kathleen, people who work at Disney are called cast members, and a documentary also casts its story. And I want to ask you about about the two people who are very central to the story, Ralph and Trina. Uh, They have worked at the company, I think, 10 years and 11 years, respectively. They do overnight custodial work, and they're paid not $15 an hour, which is the day rate, but $15.75 dollars 75 They're both working full time and they can't afford housing. Um, They can't afford other basic things like, you know, comprehensive medical care.
1: Correct. They live with their mother-in-law, with their four children in what I understand is a two bedroom house. So they're crowded together. They would love to have their own apartment even, but they can't afford the housing costs anywhere in the region. And their story is pretty typical. And when we meet them, it's 2019, and that's what they've been making. And there was a study that came out in 2018 called Working for the Mouse, which documented how hard it was for these workers. And if you read it, it's devastating. You know, hard work doesn't get you a home and a car and and just the basic necessities of life anymore. Yeah. Whether you're at Disneyland or in many, many other places in America, and 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 that's really in in my mind what Ralph and Trina represent. They work hard. They work so hard, and they try to do everything they're supposed to do. And yet, it, they're are always one you know one small crisis away from from poverty, and it's right. it's kind of crazy. And it's it's it is a it, that's the American life. The notion of the American dream is. Is truly a dream for folks like Ralph and Trina. And, you know, Disneyland says, oh, go get an education or, you know, there's a way to, you know, there's a way to somehow climb this mythical ladder. But I think the ladders have been pulled away. They don't really exist anymore.
2: Abigail, I want to ask you this question. Um, executive compensation is not unique to Disney. CEO pay has skyrocketed all over the place. And I know, from somebody high up the food chain at Disney that if you were to challenge Bob Iger or other people about their compensation they would say why don't you talk about David Zaslav at Discovery who also makes you know many 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 times what a rank and file employee does but what does compensation at Disney, how does that make the case different in how ingrained the culture of the company is? And it's selling this idea of an American dream where you can come from nothing and make something of yourself on your own. I wonder how you see it, why executive compensation within the Disney company makes it even more noteworthy.
0: Right, because it's such a forward-facing company. Because you come into contact with the people who work there and in a really intimate way, if you stand in front of that park in Anaheim and just watch the way the families are gathering there, it is, in fact, magic. And I would hate to imagine this country absent Disney because it's an extraordinary place. And so that person, the, all the way you know, from the custodian up to the manager, you're seeing them, you're interacting with them. And so If I tell you that they can't afford food for their children, it changes your experience of them so clearly. Whereas the people who work at Discovery are, you know, invisible. And I honestly believe that the nature of the Disney brand is that it's kind of the last shameable brand in America. Um, I don't think you can shame Coke or Pepsi or Levi's or any. You can't shame companies anymore, given the environment we're in, um, except for Disney. And honestly, I think that's disappearing, too. Um, So honestly, one of the reasons to make this film now was I wonder, you know, if I don't take my shot at using shame to wake people back up again about the fact that these are human beings working, um, I don't know what else we'll have as a tool.
2: I think there's another issue that the way that we get to Bob Iger is... Michael Eisner comes first. And Michael Eisner isn't just a model for Disney. He's a model for how boards can create executive compensation committees, boards that have not enough independent directors or critical directors. And then you get into this whole fallacy of like, well, that's what the market demands. That's what these people cost because you have created that cost. You have created this, not the ceiling, you've created the floor and the floor is up where the ceiling is.
0: You know, I've always thought of Michael Eisner as the gateway CEO. You know, he he was totally a creature of the 80s, very empowered by the shifting um, ethos of the time. And it shifted fast, man. It shifted fast. And Ronald Reagan was right, kind of pushing that shift denigrating unions denigrating anything that involved you know people working together and and heightening this idea on his horse with his cowboy hat that we're rug, all rugged individuals and we're on our own so so and of course I know that story intimately because it was my father who conducted the battle to replace Michael Eisner in part because of his appalling, Compensation. It was a lot of other things were happening too. And his compensation was always, always high, even when the company was losing money. So he paved the way for other CEOs by being, you know, not ashamed of it. And then, you know, Bob Iger came in and then, you know, the ground had been made ready. He didn't even have to do the hard work Michael had to do of taking the grief. Right, (laughs) Um, for what he was taking home because the precedent had been set.
2: One of the things, Abigail, that Disney argues and, you know, people who kind of defend the company and news stories about your film argue is that Bob Iger and Michael Eisner have created shareholder value by the price of the stock going up. And I don't know, Abigail, if you still own Disney stock, but I'm going to ask you, do you still own Disney stock? And its price increase has that benefited you in a way? Has that allowed you to become an independent filmmaker?
0: Absolutely, yes. Um, you know, And I, I am making a point of speaking out against my own self-interest. <laughs> there are more people that matter in a company. Milton Friedman was dead wrong when he said only shareholders matter because people who work at companies, especially companies where they spend their lifetimes, they spend more than half of their waking hours at this job, they matter and they have a stake in the company, They're stakeholders. So I believe in a stakeholder economy, which is a broad, an expansion of understanding the role of shareholders who do matter and do own the company and have a right to the appreciation and the value of their shares. But every single dollar and dime that comes into the company should not be directed at making them happy.
2: There was a um, article that came out about the film in the New York Times that made an argument that I will take exception to. And it was, it pointed out that the Walt Disney Company had raised uh, some wages up to, I think, $18 an hour, which to me is a Trojan horse because minimum wage and living wage are two very different things. Anything below a living wage means you can work full time and still be below the poverty level.
0: The problem with a minimum wage is that for most companies, it's the maximum wage, Because they won't go above anything they absolutely have to be at. And so the fight for 15 was brilliant. They were amazing. They have done incredible things and they've shifted the landscape and the conversation. But there was never going to be a time when that was going to be a living wage almost anywhere in this country. And and the minute it became the minimum wage, it was always going to become the maximum wage and, and inflation would just eat that up really quickly. Inflation's going to eat okay. up the $18 really quickly. So, we have to be talking about living wages because I mean, I mean, and you have to go to those sites there's one at MIT the living wage calculator that's brilliant. They're not talking about people taking vacations or buying luxury goods or anything like. We're talking about food, housing, healthcare, basic things. You know, so the living wage is a really bare minimum and There are companies who are trying to tackle the problem of that it's a different living wage wherever you go. And it's a different living wage if you have four children than if you don't have children. And are you penalizing the people with no children by giving them less than people with four children? These are complicated problems. And I have no doubt that we can answer these questions if we ask them.
1: And we're not socialists for for asking them. Well, <laughs> yes. Abby's okay. accused of being a socialist for even raising yeah. the subject in, the, in yes. congressional testimony, yeah. which is just insane. These are the, this is the conversation we need to be having and, and to plaster people be, you know, with all these names. is just it's just a way to to avoid the subject avoid
0: the conversation.
2: Abigail and Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales is available on demand and is in theaters in L.A. starting September 30th. And finally, here's my weekly entertainment news chat with KPCC Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. This week, it was all about podcasts.
1: Part of what draws people to careers in journalism is the chance to hold people in power accountable. And it looks like that happened earlier this week in the case of a convicted murderer. Tell us what happened.
2: So on Monday, Anand Syed, whose case was the subject of Serial's inaugural season in 2014, was released from prison after serving 23 years for murdering his former high school girlfriend, Hamen Lee. Earlier this month, prosecutors said Syed's conviction should be vacated, and he should be given a new trial because, quote, the state no longer has confidence in the integrity of the conviction. Lee's family, whose loss and whose daughter's life was not central to serial, said they were stunned by the news and received little warning of the release. Lee's brother, Young Lee, said in a court hearing on Monday, quote, this is not a podcast for me. This is real life, a never-ending nightmare for 20-plus years.
1: Can you share a little bit more about serial
2: so Serial went from an initially small audience to an average of 20 million episode downloads by the end of the show. Um, and it was one of those things where it not only made podcasts kind of a household word, but it also was driven by word of mouth. It wasn't like a big Hollywood movie, where you see ads, was people saying, have you heard about Serial? Have you heard of this new podcast? And very quickly, people started listening and started understanding the concept of podcast. Uh, Yesterday, Nick Qua, who is the podcast critic for Vulture and the founder of the Hot Pod trade publication, appeared on Air Talk with Larry Manel. And this is part of what he said about Serial and its impact, not only on this case, but on podcasting writ large.
1: I think it's safe to say that Cyril had a huge impact on this on the story and it had a huge impact on on the business as a whole. And I feel like most of us would not be talking about podcasts
2: without Cyril. So, Suzanne, I know you tolerate my quizzes. I was gonna say you love them, but you tolerate I, them. I
1: embrace them warmly.
2: Thank you very much. So I have one for you, including your new LA report. So we can add a one and retake, <laughs> we add a two to this number. Uh according to a recent study, how many podcasts are there right now? I'm gonna give you a choice. One. Twenty-four thousand podcasts, two two hundred and forty thousand podcasts, three two point four million podcasts, four two point four billion podcasts. What is your pick?
1: I'll take the the two point something million.
2: Okay, two point four million is the correct answer. Very good job, and. The global audience for podcasts right now is expected to exceed 420 million listeners by year's end. We should note KPCC and LA Studios produce or collaborate on more than a dozen podcasts currently in production. And in the immediate aftermath of Serial, between 2015 and 2019, NPR's podcasting revenue grew tenfold. And NPR now makes more money off podcasting than it does off radio. Also, the people who made Serial sold their company uh, to The New York Times in 2020 for $25 million. So it really was the beginning of a business, beginning of a media phenomenon, and as it turns out, the beginning of a, you know, a call to justice.
1: And what was your impression of Serial?
2: I have mixed feelings about it. I was not always convinced of the guilt or innocence of Syed, uh, but I really had problems with the tone of, Of the show, especially host Sarah Koenig, I thought she treated Lee's life and her murder glibly. I'm going to play a clip from the third episode where she describes the trucker who found Lee's body.
0: He stops on Franklin Town Road. He's about three miles from work. There's a small pull-off and some concrete barriers, and he walks back in there. Quite a ways, it seems like, for a guy who just has to pee. Later, they'd measure. 127 feet back into the woods is where he goes. This next tape is a little upsetting.
2: I it quite a ways for a guy who just has to pee. It's you know, this is a body that he is finding mm-hmm, and it's somebody's girl. child. And I just found like at that moment in the third episode, it really flipped a switch for me. I just thought it was glib. That said, it did have, you know, a very important effect on somebody who appears to be wrongly convicted. They There still is a chance that he could be tried again, but I don't think that's going to that that's going to happen. And, you know, I think Serial joins a number of newspapers, magazines, and documentary films. I would cite Thin Blue Line, The Jinx, and Paradise Lost in really, uh, you know, bringing an innocent person, getting an innocent person free. So you cannot discount that at all.
1: Certainly uh, worth its salt. Thank you so much, John. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thanks for listening to Retake. We'll see you again next week. I'm John Horne. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino and Monica Bushman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. The associate producer is Sabir Brabra with production assistance this week from Tyler Wayne. And a special thanks to the entire KPCC LAS newsroom.